we see a mixture of submission and humility along with great majesty and deep glory. And in terms of the biblical story, you know, that which Jesus and John and their contemporaries would have been familiar with, um, this wouldn't have been a big surprise or nothing new. And in fact, it had been specifically prophesied that this was to be the nature of things. And even for Jesus, I mean, if you just picture for a moment, you know, not like the Jesus that presently sits at the right hand of the Father, but picture a, a youngish Jewish man who had been raised in this deeply Jewish culture and would have known these texts, especially from Isaiah. Because these texts from Isaiah that prophesied both the coming of a Messiah and the characters and qualities of being this Messiah's way in the world had all been deeply and clearly prophesied. And they likely explain even the words in our gospel reading this morning where Jesus said that he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what is that all about? I mean, you know, he's obviously the sinless perfection. What does it mean that he was being baptized to fulfill all righteousness? And it probably means something like, this shows my correspondence with, this shows my alignment with, this unfolding story of God. And that in fulfilling all righteousness, I'm not only identifying myself as this suffering servant from Isaiah, but I'm identifying myself with the people. Remember these crowds of people were going down to see John and being baptized. Well, these were all crowds of sinners. And so it kind of freaks us out a little bit to think, well, well wait a minute, Jesus is identifying with sinners in baptism? And if you think about it just with a slightly different twist for a moment, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, the same Jesus who identified with you and me on the cross. And so that's the Jesus who is now in this story placing himself into this big unfolding story. And these passages, like the one we read again from Isaiah, would have shaped his post-baptism imagination. They would have shaped his ideas for what his vocation was as the Messiah, chiefly identifying with the broken, confused, and helpless crowds who had no shepherd. So Isaiah writes, and we heard in our first reading this morning, here is my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. And then I love the way Eugene gets us in the message, telling us that his way of setting everything right among the nations is that he won't call attention to what he does with loud speeches or gaudy parades. He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt, and he won't disregard the small and the insignificant. But steadily and firmly, he'll set things right. And what we see in his baptism this morning is the first public hint of that. And the first public hint that Isaiah was right, and also David, the psalmist, that what Jesus cherishes is not the religion that was happening in Jerusalem, but the broken spirits, the broken and contrite hearts that were happening out at that river. Can you feel this? There's a whole system of public and... Um, 
readily accepted religion happening in the city. And Jesus doesn't identify with that. But there's this movement of sinners that's happening out at the river and being led by this crazy guy, John the Baptist. And Jesus identifies with that. And at least on a subconscious level then, I think this tells us something about what we think about God is actually life controlling. Sometimes we think of theology, which, you know, by the way, theology just simply means thinking about God. And hopefully it means right thinking about God. And we do the best we can to think rightly about God. But no matter how well we're thinking rightly or incongruently about God and who he really is, what I want you to think with me about now for the rest of these few minutes is that at least on a subconscious level, what we think about God deeply controls and motivates our life. And this is why theologians deal with issues like saying God is transcendent, which is to say that he's, you know, completely over everything and completely otherly, but he's evidently not transcendent like the fences and gates that surrounds the home of the rich and famous, right? I mean, they're transcendent as well. They don't have much to do with us little people. So, you know, the rich and famous of any kind, you know, live behind fences and gates. In that sense, they're other than us, right? But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is other, wholly and completely other, in the sense that if a bomb went off in this room right now and you were all knocked on the floor, he's the wholly other who stood outside of that event of sin and fall and who can walk into the room and help you up. That's how he is completely and wholly other. He is not weakened by, nullified by, made incapable by the world's sin. Yet, as we see in his baptism, he enters into it. And in entering this public life, he is beginning to help humankind up in that sense. And theologians have a big name for this. Sorry for the big words on a Sunday morning. But he's not just transcendent. He's not just holy other, but he's also eminent. That is to say, he's present to humanity. And this is what the Bible means all throughout the Old Testament. And again, the the Hebrew people of Jesus' day would have fully understand that when God said things like, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that meant that he was the God of a people and even those patriarchs who were completely imperfect but he was their God and that this God who is holy other is also embedded himself in and has committed himself to a story that is lived out by real people. So we see a similar sort of theme in Isaiah 57 where Isaiah has God saying, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up hear the otherliness in that who inhabits eternity. Like you'd think way out there whose name is holy and who dwells in a high and holy place. But then Isaiah says, and also, I dwell with him or her who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I dwell with those who wish to revive their spirit being low and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's the Jesus you see at the river, not in the city. 
Now again, as theologians have tried to put this together over the years, they, they came up with this notion, I can't believe I'm using three big words in one sermon. They came up with this, but you gotta do it sometimes. So they came up with this notion that God is impassable. And that's just an old Latin term that means something like this, that God is not able, because of his, something in his nature, he's actually not able to suffer or experience emotion. This is the doctrine that God, who being absolutely independent of humans and others, means that nothing of humans can be done to him, that he doesn't experience the pain or pleasure of the actions of his creation. And people thought this was really important because they thought what they were doing was protecting God's sovereignty. So they had to find a way to make sure to say that God's not touched then by our own actions or our own attitudes. But then that raises a really big question. Where is God then in the suffering in our crazy world as Brian was just helping us here in these Psalms? Really, has he fled to the mountains? Unwilling to be untouched by the nuttiness of our present evil world? It raises questions like, well, then in what way does God love? In what way is God's love even slightly meaningful if he can't be touched by the suffering and pain of our lives? In what way then does God identify with us in our own experience of life and its pain? And the answer is the baptism of Jesus. That for Jesus, this was the beginning of a life of being totally touched by human pain. A complete identification with human brokenness and suffering, a life of being misunderstood, rejected, and crucified. And so we began to see in the picture of the baptism the way, at least if we are willing to look at it through the lens of narrative or story and not systematic you know, not the categories of systematic theology. But if we're willing to just look at this as the story actually unfolded, then what we see at Jesus' baptism is the way that this begins to be put together is that God is a suffering God who is involved with our suffering and that it's his involvement with our suffering that allows him to actually love in any kind of meaningful way. Now, when the early Jews, and you remember the early Christians were Jews, right? When the early Jews began to figure this out, you can imagine that it was mind-blowing. And whenever something's mind-blowing, we write songs about it, right? So like, you know, six, think of the 60s and protest songs. You know, whenever something big's going on in culture, we write songs about it. And one of the songs that was written about Jesus as people began to realize it, wow, this is what Isaiah prophesied generations ago. And this is what it looks like. We didn't know what it would look like, but this is what it's looking right. And so they wrote a song that Paul put in Philippians 2 that says something like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or better, I think that Greek says exploited. Can you imagine somebody in our culture today having anything that they don't exploit? Can you imagine anybody, think about this. Can you imagine anybody in our culture having anything of value that they wouldn't immediately, instinctually, intuitively exploit? Right? Isn't that why social media was created? To exploit things, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the notion today. 
But Jesus didn't count equality with God, equality with this absolute otherliness as something to be exploited. Well, then how did he show it? He emptied himself. Now, all of you I know are tracking with me so far. There's hardly a more famous passage in all of scripture. But I'll bet that many of us in this room have never asked the question, how? How did the great utterly other empty himself? Did he take things out of his pockets and, you know, start removing things? And, you know, how did he empty himself? By taking on. Who's ever heard of emptying by taking on? But this is precisely what Paul says he did. He emptied himself by taking on you and becoming your servant. That's what the text says. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, becoming born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, they sang, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, not just to the point of baptism with the losers at the river, but obedient to the point of death. And we see the same sort of picture and tension in the end of the book in Revelation 5, you know, this great scene of worship where we see something about the nature of the God where it says, one of the uh, elders said, to John as he's writing this down. Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Do you hear in there God's transcendence, his otherliness, his big shotness, right? You hear all that in there. But then the very next line says, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw, anybody remember? A lamb. A lamb standing as if it had been slain. And so, as I said this morning when we started, that whether we're conscious or subconscious of it, what we think about God actually dictates many, if not most, of our attitudes and actions of our actual life. So then ask yourself this morning, which one of these is God to you, the lion or the lamb? You know, just what's your sort of default position? This isn't a theological test. This is more of a, like, just look inside your head if you can, and which way day in and day out which one of these things reliably discloses to you the nature of God? Because, you know, having been a pastor for 30 some years now, I know that deep in the heart of almost everybody I've dealt with on any, any sort of personal level is something like this. Is God really like Jesus? Like, can we really trust that what shows up at that river and on the cross reliably discloses God? Or is the lamb just kind of like a mask? A costume in the sense I'm thinking of like a drama on a stage. Is the lamb like a mask? Is it like a costume? Or maybe you think, well, the lion gave all that up and he became the lamb. And the answer of baptism, a life of suffering and death on a cross brings us together by saying the lion is powerfully, ultimately, cosmically victorious as the lamb. It's as the lamb that this great transcendent God in the humility of cross and then resurrection brings these two things together, not for the sake of systematic theology, but for the sake of real people who are going down to a river saying, I feel far from God. And I don't know how to make the connection. I'm not even sure I understand our story anymore. 
We feel that the feeling of first century Jewish people in and through the temple was the feeling of we're on the land. We're not in Babylon anymore. We're not in Egypt anymore. We're on the land, but our hearts are far from God. And that's all Jesus was noticing. When Jesus went around doing his teaching and telling parables and stuff, he was simply reflecting back to the people what he could see perfectly was true. You're on the land, you got a temple, but your hearts are still far from God. And so the biblical images that we have in our readings this morning and the others I've given you, they are meant to call to mind that when it becomes, when it comes to us, people who at least are in some way still walking towards this river as sinners, that Jesus is patient, that he tenderly cares for you and all those struggling to come to fullness of faith. And that the way this lion and lamb thing comes together is in true love, protecting what's weak. Remember those images we read? Smoldering wick, bent reed. Think Peter. I mean, this is real stuff. This is not like poetry. I mean, it is beautiful poetry, but not merely. Think Peter, a smoldering wick about to be blown out by the trials and temptations. He's broken. And Jesus says to Peter, and I'm pulling now together Isaiah's metaphor, picture, picture Peter, a candle about to be snuffed out. And it's if Jesus comes around him and says, Peter, it's okay. I've prayed for you and begins to breathe on his life and says, don't worry, it's gonna be okay. I won't snuff you out. Even though you rejected me, said you never knew me, a light that's about to go out, I will not snuff, but I will breathe the life of my spirit on it. Don't worry, Peter, it's all gonna be okay. And then you all know Acts 2. Peter becomes a blazing freaking bonfire. And 2,000 people come to faith because he suddenly gets it. This is our God that's exposed to us at baptism and on the cross. This is an altarpiece from, it was painted, this is only a part of it. The whole thing was painted in the years 1512 to 1516. I don't know if you can see this, uh, by Matthias Grunfeld. It was painted for a monastery where the monks were famous for taking care of people with skin diseases, leprosy, various kinds of fungal infections that you know, we now have modern names for, early gangrene, that sort of stuff. That's what these monks were famous for. And so when the artist made this altarpiece, you'll note that Jesus's body is full of pockmarks. It's full of skin disease. And it was this artist's way of saying what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today. Check your pockmarks, heart, mind, maybe your body's broken, and Jesus identifies with it. Not as the great other, though he is, but the lion is made manifest most clearly, not just in theology, but in your everyday, ordinary waking life by being the servant lamb, precisely to the little broken bits of your life. Amen.